Welcome to episode four of the Leaders in Learning podcast series, a product of the Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting team at the United States Agency for International Development. Starting from a theory that effective learning organizations are more impactful development organizations, Leaders in Learning is a seven-part podcast series that explores promising practices in building learning organizations through interviews with a variety of knowledge management and organizational learning leaders in the international development sector. My name is Piers Bocock, and I am the Chief of Party of USAID's Knowledge Management and Learning Contract, also known as LEARN, and I have the good fortune of being able to host this podcast with my colleague and friend, Stacy Young, a senior learning advisor in the Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in USAID's Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning, and team lead for USAID's Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting team. The focus of this episode, episode four in our Leaders in Learning series, focuses on something we've touched on in previous episodes, particularly episode two, but also episode three, namely, what aspects of an organization's culture contribute to its learning capacity? I think we've really seen time and time again that there's a fundamental connection between an organization's culture and its ability to learn, right? Right. So, Stacy, in today's episode, as with previous ones, we'll listen to clips from three of the 10 thought leaders that we have interviewed for this series. Ooh, which ones? Well, we might call this an Englishman's episode, as listeners will quickly realize that our contributors today are all that, English men. But it just worked out that way, wasn't planned. But here's who we're going to hear from. First, we'll hear from Chris Collison, who is an independent consultant, very, very well known in the knowledge management and learning business, and author of the seminal work, Learning to Fly. Then we will hear from Clive Martlew, who is the lead for learning and leadership at the UK Department for International Development, DFID. And then we'll also hear from Rob Cartridge, who has one of the best titles out there. He is the head of global knowledge at Practical Action. No small feat. None at all. It's a, it's a big task. So anyway, as we've done in previous uh, episodes, in sifting through our notes and the recordings and the, of the interviews that we've done, three themes seem to emerge, um, and we'll listen to those in order. So the first theme we're going to listen to is around the learning-centric values that contribute to an organization's culture um, in a way that supports learning. The second is around tools that reinforce a learning culture, because as we've talked about before, it's not just about the mindsets, actually about processes and tools. And the third is the all-important leadership support, okay? Sounds good. All right, so this first set of clips, we're gonna hear first from Chris Collison, then we'll hear from Clive Martlew, and then we'll hear from Rob Cartridge. Great. Uh, what happens if leaders could create organizations where people were both curious, passionate, and smart? And maybe that's the holy grail of organizational learning. How can we create a culture which recognizes and combines passion, curiosity, and intellect in a collaborative way? And then finally, we want them to reward and recognize people who are generous in sharing their experience and in learning lessons. And I think that idea of generosity is quite important. We, 
uh, you know, we talk a bit about being curious um, and how curiosity drives learning. I think there's also something about being generous and both as a as a learner, offering yourself as a learner, asking for help, that kind of generosity, but also generosity in sharing your expertise, going the little bit of extra mile to um, to take the time to share what you know. I think if, if we're honest, one of one of the big challenges is is it safe to learn and the tension between being very visible, very accountable, very exposed in some ways, um, to sometimes to unfair external scrutiny, but sometimes just to normal fair scrutiny, and how you um, reconcile those stresses and pressures with the need to have open conversations about success and failure, about near misses, about things that are going well and not so well, um, not only with ourselves but with partners and suppliers and stakeholders. And I think that, that challenge about how we create a resilient um, organisation uh, that's confident enough to have those conversations without creating unnecessary stressful risks for for our people I think is is really one of the main challenges how do you create a safe environment in which learning can happen the one thing we know about learning is that if you're under stress if fear is part of the environment, you don't learn. That's not a good learning environment. I think um, I think we need to continue to do it collectively um, as an industry because you know you've been on a journey. I think I think USAID is further down the the, the path than DFID, and we heard from the World Bank, and we heard from. GIZ and everybody has their own experiences both in terms of donors but also the civil society end of things and it's it's a, a challenge for our industry really um, to try and tackle this thing collectively I'm nervous that um, it ends up being turned into a kind researchers I think there's a, there's a real danger of um, taking the knowledge away from the practitioners and, and dealing with it in European or North American universities and writing lots of papers and that not really having an impact on the ground so I, I I'm slightly nervous of the evidence agenda as it is I fully understand that we need policies to be made based on evidence and things like that but that is a language which tends to exclude civil society you know, with most of what we do is about know-how and experience and not about peer-reviewed papers. Um, so finding a way to generate that culture where we all feel free to ask each other questions and to not be embarrassed about not knowing things, um, 
that would be a really good start, I think, um, and to, to sort of build build that trust. And that's going to be, you know, we, we have to be honest about the, the power relationships and the, the donor relationships and things like that. Um, trying to make sure that they don't get in the way, you know, when, when, when you are a... Um, a supplier, you know, you you like to say the sort of things that you want the donor to hear, and, and we have to, to work really hard to be as open and honest as we can do. Wow. So, Stacey, um, I think you and I were sort of smiling at each other and nodding, and um, you can see why um, we thought those clips were exciting, right? There's so much there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, let me uh, reflect briefly and then um, hear w- what thoughts came up for you. Sure. Um, obviously, so much of what we heard from these three gentlemen, and it's almost appropriate that it's raining outside today. There's something very <laughs> yes. London about it. Yes. But I was so struck by this idea of generosity. Yeah. I mean, I just, that, that it was so, it's so real. And it's the idea of um, mentorship and being open to give your time. And it is the counterfactual to what we see as one of the huge dangers in knowledge management, that sort of idea that knowledge is power or that I don't have time. Right. Um, What I loved about Chris's um, really pithy soundbite was um, this, this combination of curiosity, passion, and intelligence that and the concept of a holy grail of learning now i know that um you and i would also say holding that holy grail uh, has to be a strong cup <laughs> yeah <laughs> of processes and, and and approaches that's right well said and then um hearing from rob and that that tricky balance between knowing what we do need to do um knowing those to whom we need to be accountable and and keep informed but also finding a way, as he says, to generate a culture in which it is safe to ask questions, which comes back, I think, to the curiosity and the generosity of our other two guests. Yeah, that's right, Piers. I think all three clips together do such a good job of illustrating the links between values that then translate into behaviors that then facilitate learning. And that uh, behavioral piece, I think, is so important because it is the thing that gives the processes the life that we want them to have and um, really enables, you know, for instance, um, a meeting with partners or conversation about the findings from an evaluation or whatever, really enables those kinds of uh, processes to either go in the direction of learning or go in the direction of something else which might be less useful in the end. Um, so I thought that the the way that they illustrated those links was really important. I too am struck, you know, by Clive talking about generosity. Um, and he's also, he didn't use the word, but he's also talking about humility because he's talking about people both offering help and asking for help. And I think both are important. The, the collaboration embedded in an offer of support to our peers, uh, an offer to share our knowledge and experience, but also the humility to ask for help when there's something that we don't know or somebody else's experience that can be useful. Right, that, that humility and, and vulnerability. 
Yep. The idea that maybe we don't know all the answers. Right. And how else will we fill out our evidence base if we don't first start with acknowledging that? I think that's really important. There was another thing that struck me um, thinking about, you know, Clive was talking about safe spaces. Um, uh, Rob was talking about certain types of knowledge being elevated above others. Uh, For instance, research from universities and so on being elevated above practitioner knowledge and experience. And I was thinking about the importance of translating on two levels. So on one level, there's um, translating practitioner knowledge for decision makers who might be more taken with knowledge that that emanates from research institutions or or other you know supposedly more credible institutions and how that translation is really important to get people to pay attention to certain kinds of knowledge certain kinds of evidence and you know this is something that i think a lot about with respect to our evidence base for cla work as well that that um translation involved in in uh valuing Um, different types of knowledge similarly so that they have similar impact on decision making. But then also the translation that needs to take place between a publicly funded institution and its funders, politicians who are making resource decisions, and um, how that need for safe space for learning is particularly acute, but also particularly in short supply in a publicly funded institution. You know, for some good reasons, we need to be transparent but if we're going to grapple with the things that we don't understand, um, the aspects of development that we're still learning about, uh, we also need to be sure that we can translate what we're learning for policymakers who are not development experts. And so that the skill to do that is really embedded in all of this, but in a way that sometimes we don't necessarily talk about. Yeah, that's true. And I'd like to uh, draw another thread off of what you just said. Um, as an opportunity to acknowledge that while we seem to be wrestling with some of some issues that are always ongoing, we have made progress. And um, it made me think about, and I know you have stories about this, how 10, 15 years ago, knowledge management was seen very much as a push and very much as what does come out of those research institutions. So in the health sector, for example, knowledge management was about publishing white papers and getting rid of subscription fees. But who actually on the ground um, has the time or the ability necessarily to read through uh, an academic paper? And, um, and I think that recognition that good knowledge management and learning requires at times a synthesis, a translation, so to speak, and a contextualization for the audience it's trying to serve. And I'm sure you've seen examples of that in in other sectors. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, When I came into USAID in 2003 into microenterprise development, doing knowledge management in that sector, it was very much about articulating and then pursuing a learning agenda through implementation. So um, less of that academic focus, I think, because it was the microenterprise sector, as opposed to health or especially democracy and governance, which also has has um, emanated from academia and then moved into development in many ways. But nonetheless, grappling with that issue of, again, different types of knowledge being valued differently and uh, needing to 
um, sort of rescue experience from the margins of what is seen as credible evidence, uh, but in a way that acknowledges that um, the the data points of experience may be more um, qualitatively deep, but there is still, of course, a lot of value in being able to aggregate across a number of data points. And so really um, the importance of knitting together the different types of knowledge that that come from experience in implementing, that come from um, academic research, that come from that gray area in between program evaluation and so on, um, all of them are pieces of the puzzle that, that we need to put into place. But again, wrapping all of that within the culture piece that, that these three audio clips really um, do a great job of articulating. Right, and a culture that acknowledges, as we were talking about in episode three, the complexity of the different kinds of um, equally valid data points and, and knowledge and learning. So let us move on to our next set of clips. And these uh, we will hear first from uh, Rob Cartridge, then from Clive Martlew, and then from Chris Collison. And these all now tie to that, that processes and tools piece. So it's tools that can help reinforce that learning culture that in turn helps reinforce mm-hmm. learning. Yeah, sure. So um, one of my other hats is um, I lead a small group of knowledge and learning managers from across international NGOs, mainly based in the UK. Um, And our work focuses around a platform um, where we just share experience and we get together every three months or so to share best practice and um, try and encourage each other and support each other. It's a bit of a, a knowledge managers anonymous group, really, because we try to um, you know, we're all quite isolated and, and all feel under-resourced, so we get together and try and share best practice. And the group set up, actually, before I was massively involved, um, two years ago, it, it ran a project to develop a benchmarking exercise, um, and it came up with um, nine different categories for how an organisation could do a self-assessment. Well, the, the aim of the tool, or the aims of the tool, are to educate, first of all, uh, uh, a broad range of folk in, in, in DFID. Uh, it's there to try and engage them, to, to pique their interest and um, get them um, talking about what it means to be a learning team, a learning organisation and so on. It's there to help them think about what they're doing well um, and the areas that they could improve. Um, it's also intended to encourage teams to share um, their good practices with one another and to ask for help um, in those areas where they think they, they can improve. So that's the intention. Um, after action reviews, how do you learn quickly and effectively uh, in, in a very short cycle time? Maybe if you've just got 10 or 15 minutes to reflect with your team. So asking four simple questions, what was supposed to happen, um, what actually happened, then why was there a difference, and finally what can we learn from this? So it's a, a, a technique that came out of the US Army particularly, but is used as a rapid review, uh, a, a technique to identify a technique that's used to speak the truth to power so an understanding that during our after action review uh, there is no hierarchy this is about an honest conversation it's the way the military use it and uh, beginning to get that culture uh, into organizations are 15 minutes of a safe place to talk about those things um, 
then effective project reviews that actually generate an output which is less of a cathartic download of stuff we thought we did well or not so well in our own language and more something which is designed as a learning tool, a product with a customer in mind, a customer being the next team, the next project, um, that can be pretty important. So finding ways to bring those often somewhat dull and motherhood and apple pie project review documents to life with quotations, with photographs of people here in the room, references to documents um, and, uh, and that kind of thing. Asking the right questions in reviews where you're always pushing for, okay, that's what you think you've learned, but what is your recommendation to the next team? What are the actions they would need to take in order to repeat your success or avoid that pitfall driving it? Okay, first um, I should acknowledge that with our various interviews, we had dozens and dozens of examples of practical tools and processes. That's right. So we couldn't possibly um, pull all of them out into one episode, but I wanted to give a little bit of a, a flavor of what we heard. Um, and it's three different aspects of, of tools and processes that support a culture that supports learning. The first, um, really nicely encapsulated in Rob's clip, talked about a platform and a benchmarking tool, but more importantly, a community of people, as he called it, Knowledge Managers Anonymous, who come together with shared challenges to um, share tools and experiences and to see how they're doing. And that benchmarking tool is something that Rob um, suggested he might be able to share with us, and if we can do that, we can put it within the show notes. Um, the second thing is Clive is talking about DFID's What Good Looks Like um, learning assessment tool, right? which um, I think you and I have um, been so excited to talk to him about because there are so many similarities with the uh, collaborating, learning, and adapting yes. approach we take. Yes. And then the third is Chris talking about after-action reviews. And this one I singled out particularly because it is something that when we go and talk with a USAID mission or an office and uh, we talk about collaborating, learning, and adapting, and they think it's something additional, um, everybody has heard of after-action reviews. Mm -hmm. And I love this idea about it being, A, an opportunity to speak truth to power, and B, that the customer is the next team. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And in each of these... Um, what we're hearing is an appreciative approach, right? That's forward-looking, that's looking at what's what's going well, uh, certainly also looking at gaps, but looking at how do we improve going forward. So it, to put this together with the culture piece that they were talking about in the first set of clips, um, the idea is not let's uh, sort of measure the effort and see where it came up short. The idea is really let's use a tool that helps facilitate a learning process that is forward-looking, that's pointing toward improvement, that doesn't shy away from talking about what's not going well. Uh, and I think there's an important piece on that also to be elaborated on. But that really is, is it's appreciative, it's constructive, it's forward-looking, but also acknowledging that you don't get the kinds of adaptations that you need by just having access to a pile of data, that there are these these specific tools and processes that help us move from having the supply of knowledge that we need to being able to apply that knowledge to adaptations. Absolutely. And really, really, it underscores in all three examples 
the fact that we're talking about group learning. You know, there's individual learning, which maybe in, with good materials one could download and read or watch or listen to. But this is about um, the amplification of individuals collectively sharing challenges and experiences to build the broader group knowledge base. Yeah, definitely. And and as a really important complement to the kind of individual learning that most organizations focus on, the organizational learning piece, what this looks like in terms of organizational culture, organizational processes, organizational mission. Yeah. So we just had so much fun talking with folks about this. And I think there's a lot more that we see in um, learning from and comparing to what DFID is doing and what some other donors are doing around um, their learning assessment and planning tools like USAID's uh, CLA self-assessment and action planning process. Right, and the maturity tool. Absolutely. Yeah. And also what other donors are doing. Yep. Um, yeah, it's no that, accident, right? Right. There, yeah. there really is a, an acknowledgement that this is a time to um, help focus on meeting organizations where they are and their intention and their culture to say they want to be better learning organizations and how do we support them. Yeah, definitely. So there's a nice segue here, which is an ultimate requirement to make that happen is supportive leadership. And we've seen this across the board and everybody will say this, that in looking at successful learning efforts, one of the consistent factors has been support from leadership. So these next three clips, first we're going to hear from Chris Collison, then Rob Cartridge, and then finally Clive Martlew, all relate to how leadership support helps support the overall organizational culture that will contribute to learning capacity. There's something about um, role modeling every aspect of this. All of, the, you know, all of these great aspirations for building a culture of organization, organizational learning um, will fall down if the leader is not exhibiting curiosity, not uh, participating uh, or setting the tone right. And something that actually came up today in the program we've been running with, with Differ today was the value of acknowledgement and leaders who um, perpetually and habitually acknowledge and accredit where ideas and insights have come from. I think we learned in this program as we, as we started up. So um, five years ago, Practical Action went into the consortium to do our knowledge sharing, the external sharing. But I think it quickly became clear that we didn't have the processes in place, for example, to get if there was some learning or a new technology used, used by the Red Cross in Indonesia. We didn't have a process to, to capture that and to, or the resource to, to share that. So um, what we did have the foresight to do was set up a knowledge working group, which had people on it from each of the partners in the alliance. Um, and we agreed to jointly pool funds um, and create a, a dedicated resource and, and somebody with a better job title than mine, we have a knowledge catalyst um, who sits with practical action but works across the whole alliance trying to make those things happen and join the dots and say, you know, oh, look, you know, they, the Peru have got this challenge, Mexico, can you help? And just, just getting people talking to each other and setting up those, those basic procedures. Um, I mean, the donor, you know, on that knowledge working group, Jurek as the donor and the leader also sit. So they've been very supportive of that. 
And I think we have seen um, some really good collaborative pieces in terms of the creation of some policy positions um, and some practical on-the-ground um, methodologies. Um. Mm. So these, these are some leadership behaviours, not the only leadership behaviours, but some leadership yeah. behaviours. Uh, to encourage learning before, during and after program and policy delivery in DFID. So the first one is that um, we want our senior folk to continuously emphasise how learning about what works improves the impact of policies and programmes. So we, we need people to be spotting the link between learning and results, better results. That's the first one. Second one is to help frontline staff share their experience. And one of the, the challenges we have in DFID, I think, as I, I already said, was um, that you know, in a hierarchy, it's quite easy for frontline staff, their, their views, their expertise, to get lost, to not be listened to as well as it might. So we want senior leaders to be aware of that problem and to think about how they tap into that experience. So the third one is to ensure that program design and business cases include plans and resources to learn lessons. So as business cases for programs come up through the system, they're read and signed off and agreed, not agreed, and challenged by senior managers in DFID. And we want them to be challenging people around where they're um, where the learning plans are um, within those um, programs and I think thinking about whether they're resourcing those learning plans. Fourthly uh, we want um, there to be a uh, we want them to challenge people to use research evidence and experience from other programs um, we have a good reputation in DFID for commissioning and um, commissioning evidence and research and undertaking evaluations. But the challenge, as I think I said earlier, is then to apply that, to look for it, to find the relevant evidence research and evaluation data and apply it in new program design. So we, we want leaders to challenge around that. So Stacy, these three clips uh, reflect three different aspects in my mind of leadership that supports a culture that supports learning. The first really is about behavior. It's about modeling behavior and leaders who acknowledge that the learning can come from all levels and really walking that talk of organizational learning. Um, the second is Rob. And his clip was part of a larger uh, response to a question about what kind of support from top leadership has been put in place as a result of what they have learned. And um, what he was talking about in, in another part of the interview was that how leaders had supported, top leadership had supported this role of what he called the, the knowledge catalyst. And I think sort of which which right there uh, acknowledges the fact that there there have to be those people who connect the dots and and connect for us connecting back to previous episodes about um, that 
connection between individuals and and learning those champions and the third part and again apologies for the sound quality but clive was being very generous with his time <laughs> and we were sitting in the cafe at diffid and it had been the end of a long day and so you do hear some background noise but um what i had asked him to talk about was this nudge card which is a business card and I, I brought one back for you. Yes, I carry it with me. There we go. And you've shown it to leadership at USAID, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And it right there provides guidance. So little nudges to, to leaders about how they should be talking about learning, how they should be reminding people of that connection between um, intentional learning and results or reminding folks that sometimes the best knowledge comes from the front lines. Mm -hmm. And so... The, the, the idea that what, we, what came out to me here was behavior, actual people, and then guidance. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And again, they are showing the reasons that uh, those of us who work in this area tend to insist on a holistic approach, right? Because all of those things, the values, the behaviors, the culture come together with the processes and the resources, and that's what makes for an effective learning organization. So yeah, I loved um, hearing Chris talk about the importance of leaders acknowledging, right? Acknowledging where ideas and insights come from. We've all seen leaders who sort of uh, pull ideas from their staff, but then present them as their own. And we've all watched staff feel demoralized by that, um, as opposed to leaders who, who do amplify the contributions of their staff and um, in, in so doing, really support a collaborative mode of working. Uh, so I think that's a really important um, behavior. Rob's point about pooling funds to create this this resource, this knowledge catalyst who's working across organizations, that's brilliant. And that is that, that leadership piece of saying, this doesn't happen on, on its own. I will make sure that some resources get dedicated to this important function. And then, of course, you know, we always come back to the, the processes. So um, what Clive was saying about making sure that program design and business cases include plans and resources to learn. Um, that's that aligns with what we talk about with respect to intentional and resourced learning. But then that last piece again about what it means to shine, right? Um, to have uh, organizational leaders insist that on um, staff applying learning to their programs. I think that Often we see that, you know, in a portfolio review in USAID parlance or other similar processes, people come ready to tell the story of how everything they're doing is working absolutely brilliantly. And that's what it means to shine in that context. But if you change that and you, you um, set an expectation that what it means to shine is to be candid about what's going well, but also what's not going well, and to demonstrate that you are applying new learning to address the latter. That's a, that's a different approach, and that, I think, also is a really important component of a learning organization. Yes, agreed. Um, the other thing that is popping into my head, and, and it's, it's this wonderful process of doing the podcast and then bringing these thoughts together and these, these thought leaders together, is often when we talk about leadership, we're thinking about people making a statement and saying, yes, we support learning. But we talk about learning as not just resourced, but we talk about it being systematic, intentional, and resourced. And um, we have Chris talking about 
modeling and walking the talk, but it's not just words. It is actually being willing to put some funding behind it to show that it is important. And, and both Rob and Clive talk about that. So Clive, mm-hmm. making sure that it is built in. So that came, that occurred to me as you were speaking that when we talk about leadership buy-in, in some cases, to be crude, it is leadership buy-in. It's not just saying it. Mm-hmm. It's actually being willing to um, support funding to help it. Sure. Yeah, it doesn't happen on its own. It is a development process. And the the more we understand that and the more we bring the right resources to it, as well as the right processes, the better we will function. And I think we've all worked for organizations. I certainly have worked for organizations where the CEO will say, we are a learning organization, and we believe in this, absolutely. And yet they're not necessarily willing to resource the positions or the capacity to do so. They right. think it will just happen. Right. We know that is not true. Yeah, yeah. And we are uh, fortunate to, uh, to be able to work in a situation where we are able to make it more systematic, more intentional, and, and um, to have resources put behind it. So, Stacy, I'm going to put a question to you because I think you are, uh, you have some really good experience in this. So, take us back four or five years when collaborating, learning, and adapting was an idea, a concept that some early adopters had taken on. And you and a few um, intrepid folks decided to go to leadership at the agency and say, we need to resource this effort to scale it up. We can't just write it in to guidance. And the result was the LEARN contract, which I have the good fortune of running. But a lot of people come to me and say, well, how do I talk to my leadership and and make the case for that? How did you do it? Yeah, so I think we need to reach back a little bit further than that even because um, the lucky fact was that um, you know, again, sort of uh, going back to when I started at USAID, I came into a newly created position, senior knowledge management advisor in the microenterprise se- sector, but there were resources set aside for that function. So when I started, I had a chunk of funding to put next to the effort, and it was built into a broader um, uh, funding mechanism that was supporting technical learning in the microenterprise sector. And so through that uh, and through some other similar efforts in other sectors in the agency, a number of us were able to demonstrate what's possible when you actually have some resources put against knowledge and learning. Um, Before I moved to the Policy Bureau, I spoke with the leadership of that bureau about the importance of building learning into the program cycle, and they put some resources into a mechanism that I was managing at the time from the Economic Growth Bureau. So they they bought in early on so that when I moved to the Policy Bureau, again, there was a funding mechanism in place, and we were able to um, scope some work against that. The LEARN contract, of course, is a much larger investment than had been made at the agency level ever before in knowledge and learning. And I think that came about as a result of real leadership at senior levels, uh, people understanding that this was important, but then also tangible benefits being demonstrated through those earlier investments. So 
Um, I'm not able to guide the knowledge manager who has been given six months and a budget of zero uh, about how you create the kind of space that, that we work in now. Um, <clears throat> but I do think that uh, the with a small amount of resources, you can demonstrate some value and thereby make the case for greater investments over time. And in demonstrating that value, you um, no doubt were able to create pockets of that more learning-focused culture. Yeah, I think so, definitely. And and again, it wasn't just uh, me. It wasn't just the microenterprise sector. Um, there was a lot of interesting work going on in the health sector, as you know, Piers, because you were part of that, um, and in some other sectors at USAID as well. So being able to point to those other efforts and the uh, value that those were able to demonstrate in terms of better organizational learning, better development results, um, and, and making that link, that's also been important. Um, of course, this is the number one thing that people struggle with, right? How do we get senior leaders to actually invest resources in this? And um, th- that's where a lot of the evidence base for CLA work points, because what we hear from people again and again is that um, that is what leaders ask for, that kind of evidence when they're making resource decisions. Unfortunately, there's a growing body of evidence. Absolutely. And there's a growing body of um, examples of leadership supporting this. And the thing I think that is most exciting to our um, colleagues in other agencies is a contract like LEARN, where there is a significant investment in building capacity across the agency. And, of course, is the fact that in our upcoming Moving the Needle event, which celebrates uh, challenges, successes, and progress in collaborating, learning, and adapting, and its connection to development, programming, and impact, we have USAID's administrator, Mark Green, who has agreed to keynote that event and tie his mission of supporting partner countries in developing their self-reliance to what collaborating, learning, and adapting can do. So it's very exciting. Very exciting, yeah. So I think we are about out of time. And as with all of these things, I think uh, our listeners could tell that we could talk forever and ever because we'd love this. But we're going to wrap it up for today. And um, with that, I would like to obviously take the opportunity to thank you, Stacey, as always. Well, thank you, Piers. And to thank our contributing thought leaders for today's episode, Chris Collison, Clive Martlew, and Rob Cartridge. And as always, our intrepid podcast producer, Amy Leo. Thank you, Amy. And to thank the Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in U.S. States Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning, who helped resource this series. This was the end of episode four, and then in episode five, we'll be talking about what is the role of formal and informal leadership in creating a learning organization. Thank you very much. The USAID Learning Lab podcast is a production of USAID Learn, implemented by DEXIS Consulting Group and its partner, RTI International. On behalf of USAID's Office of Learning Evaluation and Research, in the Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Our music is by Poddington Bear.